Hey, welcome everybody. Andrew Holacek here um, with a very special guest and a, a wonderful friend, um, Tucker Peck. I wanted to introduce him to you, and then we're going to uh, launch into some really, I think, rich, provocative topics. Um, and I will share with you one of the reasons I find my time with Tucker so unique, because he really is a special individual. So um, Dr. Tucker Peck, PhD, is a clinical psychologist, meditation teacher, and sleep expert. He received his undergraduate degree from Boston University studying sleep. Uh, Brown, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Brown University studying sleep and circadian rhythms. <clears throat> and he earned his master's and PhD under the late Dr. Richard Woodson, um, founder of behavioral sleep medicine. Tucker is a faculty member of the University of Arizona's College of Medicine Sleep Fellowship and an insomnia therapist on a research project with the University Medical Center. In meditation, he studied first under Sharon Salzberg and then under Chula Desha, <laughs> who approved him as a teacher, and he now teaches meditation retreats and workshops around the world. And this is the really cool part. Tucker is in the process of launching an awesome new site, www.drugfreesleep.com. And this is uh, quite a bit of what we'll be talking about. This is an online course about overcoming insomnia, which is he's, he's very expert in. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us here, Tucker. And really, as I mentioned at the outset, one of the reasons I'm so excited to get to know Tucker better and to have him on with us is that not, not only does he bring a wealth of scientific knowledge um, around this material, but he's also uh, very well seasoned, trained and disciplined in the meditative arts. And this is completely resonant with, with my approach, with the approach of nightclub altogether where we try to create this, this very broad spectrum approach that can target so many different avenues um, you know, along these really rich topics. And so we're going to be exploring both the science and the kind of the meditation um, behind sleep and to whatever extent dreams. And what I wanted to start with right away, um, Tucker, with your permission, because this obviously is your forte, and this is where we get a lot of questions um, I have personally received questions like this, uh, you know, in my own clinical practice, I'm treating sleep disorders, um, and also now we're starting to get more and more traffic around this on our website. And this, of course, is, I believe, the number one sleep disorder, right, of the hundred or so that are out there. I think uh, insomnia tops the charts. Is that a fair thing to still say? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah, cool. So I want to approach this topic with you on, on several levels. First of all, um, I want to open the, the floor for you and just have you share with our listeners some general overview um, kind of comments about insomnia altogether. And then um, I want to dovetail into the non-medicinal approach to that, you know, whether herbal supplements and the like can help. But, but most particularly, as we talked about uh, you and I previously, the incredibly uh, important role of CBTI. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and your expertise in that. So um, let's start with just some general comments about your, your experience with insomnia as a clinician. And then also, um, well, let's start with that. Start with that open kind of question, and then let's talk a little bit more targeted about how some of these other modalities can help. Because, and I suffer yeah. from this uh, you know, annoying condition. I think there's very skillful ways that you can bring insights to our listeners so they can transform this obstacle uh, even into an opportunity. So let us um, 
Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much for having me on your show, by the way. I, um, I, I emailed all my students, uh, or I, I asked them in the classes, you know, did they listen to it? And this one student, Georgia from Bosnia, was like an absolute fanboy and knew everything you had ever done. <laughs> so I was, I was very excited to be here. Cool. Um, so uh, insomnia seems absolutely ubiquitous. You know, normally if you're making small talk with somebody and, and say, what do you do? Oh, I'm an engineer. Oh, okay, okay. And I say, oh, I treat insomnia. Nobody just smiles and nods. <laughs> Everybody wants to talk. Um, the reasons that insomnia has become such an epidemic are pretty varied. It's often blamed on cultural factors like an emphasis on productivity, on the amount that you do being the primary judge of your worth. Also factors like it used to get dark when the sun set and you wouldn't have anything other than quite dim firelight until the sun came back up. And uh, nowadays there's constant light, there's uh, 24 hour activity and things you can be doing. Uh, most of us are like deeply addicted to the internet. And um, I'll go ahead and confess, even as an insomnia doctor, I opened my phone at midnight last night <laughs> to, to see what was happening on it. Um, so we would talk about three different places you'd find insomnia, which would be trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, so frequent wakes up, wake ups or uh, wake ups with a long duration, and then trouble uh, sleeping as long as you'd like to. Um, I used to go every year to the, uh, the conference is just called sleep. It's the big conference on sleep research. And there was this running joke that every presentation was the same. You took some problem X, uh, tried to figure out whether healthy sleep made it better or worse, what was the effect of insomnia, and it turns out problem X is made worse by insomnia. And, and uh, uh, the joke was that this was the whole conference. <laughs> um, yeah, insomnia tends to exacerbate just about every other problem. This study I'm working on at the moment is investigating questions related to um, when people get out of the hospital, uh, what sort of relapse do they have if they are insomniacs versus if they're sleeping well? The data that's out there is depending on what sort of disorder you have. It's four to ten times more likely that people with insomnia will end up back in the hospital than people who are sleeping well. Wow. And so what do you, you know, what have you found um both personally, if you've ever been afflicted with insomnia, and I suspect you, you probably have some episodes like virtually every human being on this planet, <laughs> uh, what have you found personally to be of, of benefit for you? And then specifically, um, CBTI, because my understanding is that's one of the most effective non-medicinal approaches. But let's start with your own experience. I mean, how, how have you worked with it within your own life experience? Yeah, I get insomnia sporadically. It'll come for a few weeks intensely and then go. Um, this is a cheap trick, but one of the one of the components of uh, CBTI is the cognitive therapy component, which is examining your beliefs about sleep. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that what you think about sleep really quite heavily determines how insomnia is going to affect you. So a lot of people will endorse the statement, if I don't get eight hours of sleep, I cannot function. Um, I think most therapists have had a few like legendary patients, the ones that they just talk about forever. And I, I had a man who was 
in his 20s, uh, was a self-made millionaire, um, very happily married, and he endorsed the sentence, I cannot function on less than eight hours, and I haven't gotten eight hours of sleep since I was a teenager. You know, if what is functioning if you're not doing it? <laughs> yeah. um, so honestly, the biggest help for me, which might sound like a cheap trick, has been the recognition that short-term sleep deprivation is really not that bad. Um, one night of even extremely bad sleep, if you stay like mindful of the consequences, generally isn't that bad. Um, one very bad night of sleep generally makes your next day a little bit worse and then leaves you exhausted by the end of that day and able to fall asleep. So this has been the most helpful thing for me is if it's 2 a.m. and I can't sleep, to get up and read a book and realize it doesn't super matter uh, whether I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. So, Tucker, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that, um, like from a clinical point of view, uh, one isn't considered a, an insomniac until there's a certain kind of constancy of, of sleeplessness. In other words, one night, from a clinical point of view, doesn't really characterize you as someone suffering from insomnia. It has to be for a particular duration before that clinical diagnosis is actually made. Yeah. I would say in practice that clinical diagnosis is not terrifically helpful. Um, I wish I knew it off the top of my head. It's something like 30 minutes or more of sleep onset latency combined with some other factors, more nights than most over a period of a few months. Um, Clinically, I don't think anybody's going to say, well, it was 28 minutes, so it doesn't count. Please go home. Um, right. if, <laughs> if, if somebody says they can't sleep, uh, I'll, I'll treat them. Yeah. Yeah. And can you say then a little bit more? I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of circumambulating this, this topic of CBTI. And, um, and I know a large part of what you'll be doing with your site will be working with that. But I'm sure a lot of our listeners are not familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy um, as a generic tool, let alone CVTI. So can you tell uh, a little bit about both those? What is cognitive behavior therapy? Yeah, sure. So cognitive behavior therapy is a a multi-component package, probably the most commonly used or commonly known part of cognitive behavior therapy is this notion that your thoughts are lying to you in pretty predictable ways. Mm-hmm. And that it seems that it doesn't matter how inaccurate the lies are. Uh, we just tend to believe them automatically uh, without addressing them. Fake news, right? Yeah, yeah that, that's right. That's right. There's this internal fake news ticker. Um, and it tends to lie in pretty predictable ways. So it tends to be extreme, right? So your thoughts tell you you're an idiot. You know, nobody likes you. And it's hard to find anybody that, like, truly nobody likes. The thoughts also seem to be totally unrelated to reality. It doesn't matter how many people like you. When the thought comes up that you're an idiot, that you're a failure, it doesn't matter how many things you've succeeded at or how many people like you. It tends to be extreme. It tends to be personal. So when other people fail, our automatic response is often compassionate, right? Um, yeah. That was hard. I'm sorry. Uh when I, I, I use this example in my intro meditation classes, everybody has meditation homework. Suppose the person next to you comes in and says they didn't do your homework. Well, it's okay. You know, like you'll do better next week. Everybody gets busy sometimes. Okay, now pretend you didn't do the homework. Are you saying, it's okay? No, nobody's saying that. <laughs> so 
cognitive behavior therapy in general, one of the components of the treatment is uh, looking at the way in which your thoughts are inaccurate and taking your thoughts as scientific hypotheses. So looking at evidence for and against various thoughts so you can get a more accurate worldview. Uh, that component of CBTI involves looking at thoughts like the one I was mentioning of, I need eight hours of sleep to function. Um, the idea that sleep deprivation is bad for your health, this is certainly true in the long term. This isn't especially true in the short term. In the 60s, there was a guy that stayed awake for 12 days. And um, while other people, that, that radio DJ uh, uh, had extremely bad luck with his 12 days, some people can stay up 12 days and largely be okay and live normal lives following them. So, you know, the thought that if I don't sleep tonight, I'm going to... Uh, be sick, I'm going to die younger, and things like that. Uh, you hold these up to the evidence. And the idea is the more that you realize the thoughts are false, the less sway they're going to have over you, the less they're going to affect your emotions and behaviors. Right. Beautiful. And, and this obviously dovetails really elegantly with meditative principles altogether, does it not? Where a large part of what we do in meditation, and this is the track I want to take it now because a lot of people have questions around this, um, Tucker is that, you know, as you know, I think we would agree that a large part of what meditation does is not so much like change or stop the display of the mind. Um, in fact, I, I often uh, share with my students that, you know, on one level, really, meditation doesn't change anything out there, even out there at this point being one's thoughts. What it does do is it changes the way you relate to what's out there. And so to me, what I'm hearing here, and I'd love for you to, to talk more about the confluence of CDTI, your clinical expertise, and also your meditative training, about how it seems to me, and I, and I speak from my own experience with um, you know, episodic uh, you know, episodes of uh, insomnia on my end, it's changing one's relationship. That seems to be one of the central narratives I'm hearing from you, is it's really about altering one's relationship to phenomena. Um, in this case, uh, what we deem to be an untoward state of mind, i.e. insomnia, and how it can be you know, really uh, completely um, anti-productive um, and even exacerbating the situation to develop a kind of adversarial relationship to the insomnia mind. You know, I, I find um, that very often what, what tends to make insomnia so much worse is, you know, we just we start to wrestle with our mind. We wake up and it's like, you know, you throwing your mind onto the mat and trying to pin it down and really relating to it in ways that are completely counterproductive because your mind will always throw you back off. And the next thing you know, you know, you're, you're spinning yourself into a total knot and becomes this really kind of sad self-fulfilling prophecy. But so talk to us a little bit about both your personal experience and your clinical experience, bringing these two amazing worlds together because they really do seem to be highly confluent to me. It really resonates. Um, I think they're highly complementary. Um, so I, the meditative style that I teach d does come from an early early Vajrayana. Uh, Chuladasa's model is the most common style of meditation that I'm teaching, and, and this comes from like the the Kamala Shila ten stage uh, uh -huh. samadhi uh -huh. model. But the, the Dharma that I teach is pretty exclusively Theravada, and at least from the Theravada Dharma. What we know in modern psychology is, is, as far as I can tell, both absent and necessary. So the way that you would deal with thoughts through cognitive therapy versus through mindfulness is actually pretty 
different. Cool. And I think both approaches are generally necessary. Uh, in mindfulness, it would be recognizing the thought is just a thought. And recognizing the thought is just a thought is agnostic to content, right? Uh, you don't have to care what the thought is. In a lot of schools of meditation, when you become more advanced, you don't even know what the thought is, right? Your, your ability to uh, do what you want to do is good enough that the thought just comes and goes. And you might know there's thinking or not thinking. But what the thinking is about is really incidental. Mm -hmm. um, Western psychology generally focuses on psychological content in, in a way that at least my schools of meditation really don't except in the early stages. So this idea of like, you think you need eight hours of sleep, listen to that thought, argue with that thought. This is really kind of the opposite of what, what I think we would, we would teach people in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what, I mean, what is your, your go-to then? I mean, do you, do you find yourself engaging in both approaches when you're working with, with your own clients with sleep disorders like this? I mean, how do you, how do you kind of parse those out and, and yeah, my first teacher was Sharon Salzberg, and she used to say this thing a lot, uh, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now solve yours. <laughs> um, I feel increasingly convinced that there's no one right path, there's no panacea. So um, cognitive behavioral therapy for, for a Westerner is an easier sell than mindfulness. There's nothing theoretically complicated. Some postulates are right, some postulates are wrong. Your thoughts are postulates, hypotheses, test them, see if they're right. Um, it's really easy to explain this. Some people get a lot of freedom from their thoughts, realizing they're wrong, creates this kind of uh, acceptance commitment therapy, we call it diffusion. It's a similar concept to mindfulness, like a de-identification. Yeah. Um, Whereas for other people, it's just arguing, you know? Now, one voice is saying, you'll never sleep. The other voice is saying, uh, sure you will. The third voice is saying, shut up, I hate all this yelling. Um, in that case, I would move somebody to mindfulness. I always give people both approaches and see which one sticks for a given person. And so maybe say a little bit more, because we, we, we had one question in particular from a, a member um, wanting to know specifically, like say for instance, people who have a little bit more of a meditative disposition, they're already engaging in some sort of mindfulness or, or whatever their particular practice might be. Um, how might you talk to them about supplementing, augmenting their meditation for insomnia? Like let's say, let's say for instance, you wake up at 4 a.m., um, you're all spun out in, in a, an episode of insomnia, what type of meditation approach might you suggest? I mean, would you recommend people at that point, if they're meditatively inclined, to um, actually sit up in meditation, for instance? Or can they take an analog to like savasana and engage in their practice when they're lying down? Um, so maybe talk to us a little bit about how exclusively if you're engaging in meditation as an antidote, how might you engage with that? Yeah. I'm going to give a very uncommon answer to that question. Um, so the research I did my uh, master's and PhD on was how meditation practice affects sleep. And it turns out that on every conceivable subjective measure of sleep, meaning mm -hmm. rating how deep your sleep was, how well rested you felt, and so on, the more you meditate, the better your sleep becomes. On every objective measure of sleep, uh, 
different stages of sleep, uh, awakenings, total sleep time. The more you meditate, the worse your sleep is on every conceivable objective measure of sleep. Um, I ended up not being able to publish this, um, but there were several other people who found something similar and published it that the word Buddha literally means someone who is awake. And meditation is about cultivating wakefulness. So I keep a crossword puzzle and a book on Buddhist philosophy on my nightstand. And mm -hmm. if I can't sleep, I get out of bed and I do something. Mm -hmm. um, I generally don't meditate. Um, that's a practice of waking the mind up. Exceptions would be things that really aren't trying to cultivate mindfulness. So in at least in the way I would normally teach meditation, dullness and uh, meditation are, are opposites, you know? And you're trying to cultivate dullness. You're trying to make the mind dopey and weak in order to fall back asleep. So some kind of like just deep breathing, um, yeah. a gentle body scan where you're not trying to increase the clarity of perception. Maybe something like that. But, but personally, from all the years of meditating, it's just too ingrained in my head that meditation is about getting your mind sharper. So um, this is worth talking about, if you don't mind me engaging with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, of course, Andrew. Uh, yeah, this is really interesting to me because, to me, what I'm hearing here, Tucker, is you know when we talk about med meditation, of course, it's like sport. Um, it, it, it's a catch-all term which subsumes just a whole battery of yeah. meditations, as you know, and and probably the two overarching classifications of meditation are mindfulness, awareness, shamatha, vipassana, and so. To me, I think it might be helpful to toss around a little bit that those those entities, those shamatha and vipassana, are obviously deeply connected, but they're not the same thing. Um, and the reason I put this forth is I believe that, for instance, the, the quiescent component, the shamatha component, literally tranquility, quiescence, um, that that one, um, in my experience, can be used effectively to kind of you know, calm the mind down, slow the mind down, because very often, um, you know, what happens in my mind when I'm uh, highly uh, afflicted by insomnia is my mind gets really speedy, gets really windy, and my thoughts are like traffic jammed and, you know, bumper to bumper, and there's literally no space between the thoughts. And, and one of the images I hold is that I'm not going to fall asleep until the traffic jam subsides and the gaps, the natural gaps between thoughts actually uh, allow themselves to um, be expressed in a certain way, and then we eventually kind of fall through those gaps. The Vipassana component, I think, is the way I would interpret what you're talking about, and that's the waking up quality. That's the more analytic, incisive, literally insight meditation, which is, in fact, um, the great contribution of the Buddhist tradition to, to literally see. That's the more kind of wakeful component. So I, I, I'm curious how that resonates with you, that. Um, I know other some some Tibetan Rinpoches um, sometimes even talk about uh, what they refer to as stupid shamatha, or um, I've actually heard the term animal samadhi, animal shamatha, <laughs> um, where the idea is, you know, you you actually can use your breathing, you can use the kind of putting the brakes on the mind through shamatha meditation. Another way, another way I separate the two shamatha and the pashna is shamatha slows down, stops. The pashna sees, and so to me, it seems that that one could use the breaking component, the slowing down component, 
to breathe, to settle, to open and allow the mind to kind of sedate um, in that regard. Does that resonate with your experience and training? Um, I I know that you, you've done a three-year meditation retreat, right? And, yeah. and so it wouldn't surprise me for uh, an expert meditator to be able to do that. But my my sense would be using shamatha to actually still or pacify the mind um, at maximum alertness on a happy day up in a cabin in the mountains is a pretty advanced thing to do. Uh, anxious and tired at 3 a.m., I would think you've got to be really skilled at meditation for shamatha to have that kind of stabilizing, pacifying effect. My my guess would be when you start focusing your attention, it's going to cause you immediately to be able to see more clearly, unless you're so skilled that you can truly quickly stabilize, not do an accidental vipassana of looking around the mind. It's going to make it more clear that you are anxious, that you are worried. And the parts of the brain that are involved in suppression and emotion regulation, these guys are not online at 3 a.m., you know? I don't I don't know if you ever worked night shift uh, before. I, I worked night shift on and off for 10 years. And the sentence, this is an inappropriate thing to share with a colleague, that sentence, you can't form it beyond about 2 a.m., right? <laughs> My my guess would be shamatha is going to kick stuff up that you don't have the ability to regulate or pacify without quite a tremendous amount of experience under your belt. I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, really interesting. I, I find it compelling. You know, I think to me, let, let me interject this. What came to mind is this uh, quality of uh, witness awareness. Um, again, a, a little bit more in the shamatha lens, and I think this probably where leads a little bit into vipassana. Where to me, when I when I bring what I refer to as a kind of a meditative lens, because I'm not I'm not trained in CBTI, um, when I bring a meditative lens to my insomnia, what that means to me is a, a quality of witnessing where um, I don't allow myself. You know, the, the display of the mind is still there, um, very much like it might be in my daily meditations. Um, but in this case, what I do, what I implement in my practice is, is a, you know, I, instead of being in the front row of the Cartesian theater, um, I put myself on the back row um, because I know if, if I'm in the front row, I'm going to get hooked. You know, that the thought's going to bring up, I'm going to identify with that. It's going to suck me in. I'm lost. And so to me, the meditative component here is going from the front row to the back row where the display is still there, this kind of witnessing stance, and this, and this parenthetically uh, applies beautifully to a type of lucid dreaming called witnessing lucid dreams, where you, you actually completely lucid in the dream state. What, what defines this particular type of lucidity is there's no participation whatsoever. You just simply watch the show of your mind without participation. So I, I guess that is the way, when I bring meditation to my insomnia, that's the way I work with it. You know, I, I first of all, Wake up to it, recognize, oh, there's that. And then, you know, the immediate flip in the relationship for, for me is one of instead of developing this adversarial relationship, it's like, well, look at what my mind can do. You know, it's like it completely flips my relationship to it. It's almost celebratory. It's like, this is amazing. And then what I do is how amazing it can it be that I can also now step back from that, let the display shine forth, you know, a little bit like. Um, campfire sparks just dissolving harmlessly into the nighttime sky. Um, and so 
And in my own personal experience of working with insomnia, that is the, the so-called meditative framework that I bring to it. Um, and I'm curious if that resonates with you. I mean, have you yeah. So theoretically, I mean, uh, philosophically, I don't think there's any reason to say meditation couldn't or shouldn't work for insomnia. I, I think in practice, if you don't really know what you're doing, you just can't control the effect of the meditation well enough. The, the school of meditation that I most often associate myself with is this newer one called Pragmatic Dharma. Oh. And uh, part of what I like about it is the pragmatism. If meditation helps you sleep, you keep it up. <laughs> if, if meditation isn't helping you sleep, uh, do what I do. Keep the crossword puzzle nearby. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess it's just different strokes, you know, I mean, different bandwidths and applicability. So uh, with that said, um, one of the questions that we had was, is there any research? And let me pull this up real quick because I found this one compelling. Is there any data to support that um, meditation can, in fact, um, substitute or make up for lost sleep? Because if my memory serves me correctly, way back in the days or early days of TM, one of the things that TM, Transcendental Meditation, seemed to espouse was that you could enter states in meditation that were um, virtually identical with certain brain way, you know, uh, brain states associated with sleep, and that therefore, if you engage in the sense of meditation, you wouldn't need as much sleep, or you could actually make up your sleep with your meditation practice. I mean, what is what is your scientific and experiential understanding? Yeah, that's a good question. So I need to answer all research questions with the caveat that I haven't remained a scientist since finishing graduate school. And so uh, my, my current science work is as a therapist. So I used to be, you know, I could tell you every study off the top of my head. Things that have happened in the last five or six years could easily have slipped past my radar. At least the, the state of the science when I was last totally up to date on it. Uh, this has been a claim since... Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.